0: Welcome to the second season of the Open Update for Liberate Science. I'm your host, Chris Hartgrink, and in this season, we interviewed 10 guests over the course of nine weeks about the UNESCO recommendation on open science. We talk about what it means to them, their work, and the future of research so that we can also better understand what it means to us, our work, and our future in research. What new ways of being lie in store for us. And I encourage you to find agreements and disagreements throughout the series and leave voice messages with your thoughts, like you would share thoughts with a friend. Find how in the show notes, and don't be shy, don't be a stranger. Your voice matters. Today, we're joined by Brian Nosek, Director of the Center for Open Science and Professor of Psychology at the University of Virginia, Uh, In doing research for the podcast, I found out he was an undergraduate in computer science before switching to psychology, and am I glad that he made the switch. Who knows whether the influential projects Brian co-founded in the past decades would have even existed. Projects like the Open Science Framework, the Society for Improvement of Psychological Science, and Project Implicit. The exception may be the reproducibility project Cancer Biology because it has neither anything to do with computer science or psychological science. Regardless, all of these projects together have influenced thousands of people and researchers around the world, and he is here today to share how his vision for a better science has evolved, especially in light of the recent UNESCO recommendation on open science. Brian, welcome to the Open Update.
1: Thank you for having me, Chris.
0: So to get us uh, going, one question we'd like to ask everyone throughout this series is, what is a low-hanging fruit of the UNESCO recommendation on open science, and what do you think is going to be much more difficult
1: to realize? So the the low-hanging fruit, I think, is the, uh, the normative power that the recommendations have to make a lot of these conversations easier. You know, one of the big challenges of advancing open science is that it is in opposition in some way or another to the system as it currently exists. And so the nature of conversation, of change, of adopting new practice, of uh, shifting policies requires bridging something between the current state uh, and an ideal, in quotes, state Uh, that necessarily has friction. Systems tend to persist through inertia or because people want to rationalize the status quo uh, or because change is hard uh, and there's just lots of work that needs to be done uh, to realize that change or because the infrastructures and tools and knowledge doesn't exist and isn't disseminated. So for me, the emergence of the UNESCO uh, recommendations is it is the strength of the cumulative efforts of so many in the community over the last, you know, dozen and plus years uh, to articulate what the value proposition is, what the need is, and then the manifestation of that in a document that has that power of uh, of collaborative action uh, that UNESCO represents. So this is sort of a non-specific answer. It's like, oh, well, here's this one recommendation that we could do really fast. It's more of one level up of now that UNESCO has said this, and I'll say in language that is amazingly good, uh, it really covers the breadth of almost everything that I would want to have in such a document. And, I, you know, not just me. I'm sure lots of people have reactions uh, about that. Um, but it is very well informed about Uh, what the open science potential is and what that means translated into practice. And so that as a collective document from such a high credibility source, I think is just going to make a lot of these conversations that dozens, hundreds, thousands of people are having in their department, in their institution, in their collaborations, a lot easier to have and will reduce that friction in the aggregate.
0: I do want to push a bit more on uh, on what a difficult thing to realize is, because you say, okay, it's really this culmination of work that's been going on for quite a long time. It's written in a very good language. It covers almost all the bases um, and it sets this norm. And so in realizing those norms, what do you think is gonna be really a key thing to having the UNESCO recommendation not in 10 years be another recommendation that sits somewhere on a shelf, but that it's actually something where we go like that was the impact it had.
1: Yeah. Well, one answer is that the project of advancing open science and shifting the research culture does not live or die based on the UNESCO recommendation. So as much as I think it is an important document and statement from the the participating, uh, nations and organizations, uh, this movement will occur regardless. It's just this is going to be one additional lever of support uh, of persuasion uh, that can be used to keep it going. Um, so that in that sense, I would say that it is uh, uh, it's, it doesn't matter. that's too strong a word <laughs> uh, phrase, right It does matter. Of course it matters that they get this collective will behind it. Uh, but the, I guess the more pointed uh, response to the, the phrasing of the question is that it should not either give people pause of, oh, I guess I don't need to do my part of collective action work anymore, of reform effort as a reformer, because now UNESCO said it. This doesn't end any of that. If anything, it says... Here, now you have a new tool in your toolbox to bring to the table when you're doing whatever it is your actions are. It is a facilitator of the existing efforts and ideally will expand the community of reformers in uh, those efforts uh, by raising awareness, providing common language, and providing some pretty specific behavioral recommendations of what it should look like uh, if all of this works. And so that alignment work is really the key contribution, I think. And the, the rest of it, of translating that into action, is what the reform movement is doing and has to just keep doing with this additional resource.
0: I hear you say that, uh, that that indeed it's a very important document, and it brings together a lot of people. And that translation—do uh, I understand correctly that that translation is going to be the difficult part because many people will translate it also in their own ways, in their own situations?
1: Yeah, right. And that is the—I the, mean—that's what's most to me most impressive about the language of the document is that it manages to be quite concrete. Uh, And here are things that need to happen, while also representing pluralism on the value proposition, right? What is open science for? It's for increasing reproducibility and rigor. No, wait, what's open science for? No, it's increasing democracy. What's open science for? No, it's increasing access and equity, right? There's lots of different value propositions that are all meaningful, not mutually exclusive, uh, but also different areas of of interest in advancing open science, and it leans into that. It doesn't say this is the one thing and why we're doing it. It says, here are the different reasons that we would care about open science, and here is how some of these behaviors contribute uh, to meeting those objectives. If there was, like, here is the answer, and this answer works in all contexts for all people in all situations. then the document could say that, but of course that's not how it is, right? <laughs> we know how hard it is to translate this stuff into practice. Right. And Even something like, is your data open? Like, is there a consensus state of, statement of what that means? No, of course not. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> like what data are you talking about? Like which level of analysis are you talking about? What is it fair? Well, what does fair mean? Well, it's, it's all of this stuff is complicated. And so trying, if UNESCO tried to impose a standard that is so specific that you wouldn't see diversity in implementation, then it would not succeed. It would fail even faster than a version of it that is totally ambiguous, uh, where it's just like openness is a good thing, and shouldn't that be the end of it, what we say? Uh, and I so from my perspective, it threads the needle really well of providing direction, but not imposing uh, standards that are not yet tested, uh, not yet known for how they uh, get implemented. And to me, and I'm curious if if you have a, a different perspective for, for reform, the key thing that is the biggest barrier is getting started. And once a community starts saying, just take data sharing as a specific example. Once a community starts data sharing, all kinds of problems emerge. Oh, like I don't understand the data or they said the data is not av- available, but it isn't available. Oh, it wasn't preserved right. Nope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All of those things will always emerge uh, in new behaviors, new practices. But once you've started, then those conversations can happen. Uh, then that work can get done that it's more now about refining the behavior rather than getting people to do the behavior at all.
0: And this is immediately related to that inertia you spoke about.
1: Exactly. Right. So it's like, well, I've never shared data, but now I've shared data. Okay. But then you email me and say, yeah, this data makes no sense. I think the mistake that we make as idealists in reform is that we want it all to be right, right away.
0: Uh, So... Has that process influenced how the Center for Open Science is going to move forward? Or maybe also in a more general sense, has the UNESCO recommendation uh, made you reevaluate certain of your own personal objectives?
1: Yeah, well, I think what the document does well is represent so many different parts of the openness movement in terms of activity. like organizationally, we, we spend very little effort on open access per se, right? Um, we offer preprint services and that, you know, obviously we, we promote uh, open access and green uh, in particular, uh, but the document spends a lot more engagement with that. Uh, and in that sense is reflecting what has been the lion's share of the effort in the academic openness uh, community Uh, in promoting open access. So it certainly does reach out beyond a lot of the things that we have, we are resourced to do specifically. But also, we're just one organization of many. Uh, You know, it doesn't, it doesn't, we don't need to try to cover everything that is in that document. And I don't think it's productive for us to try to do that. Uh, Because there's, uh, there's a lot of work to do. Uh, And it needs to be a lot of actors, uh, organizations, individuals, and otherwise uh, that are contributing to that. And so so for us, it's sort of like, oh, let's play to our strengths. And a lot of our strengths are, are represented there. That's really awesome.
0: Yeah, it's it's very easy to sometimes feel the weight of some of these big societal issues on your shoulders. I know that a lot of people have this throughout the years. Maybe they leave academia as a result of it. And I think that what you say is uh, also a great reminder. The UNESCO recommendation is not just a guiding tool into the future. It's also a reflection of uh, all the work that has been done and almost a celebration of that work. So I would like to uh, have one final question on this topic of specifically how uh, reproducibility within the recommendation comes forward, how... Uh, the strategy has been affirmed or shifted. And I think one of the questions that I want to ask specifically is there are people who say that the reproducibility movement has also pushed for very homogenous forms of doing research, uh, sort of elevating pre-registration uh, over a more diverse set of uh, research approaches. How do you feel about these, these, these comments, these criticisms, and how can we provide more space To different ways of knowing?
1: Yeah, no, great question. So the idea of uh, diversity in how we establish credibility uh, of findings or reproducibility uh, of findings is very important. Uh, There is no singular silver bullet solution to how to do good research. We're never going to be done on how do we innovate in terms of methods and practices to make our research better. Pre-registration is one tool in a toolbox of many things, many of those things not yet discovered, uh, of ways to do research better, to get to how we know things. Uh, So I expect and hope uh, that not only will the continuing critique of any new practice, pre-registration or otherwise occur, uh, with evaluation to see how uh, it can be maximized in terms of its benefit, how its costs can be mitigated, uh, and how its appropriate use uh, can be determined. But also that we keep advancing a lot of other interesting approaches and solutions. Right? One that I think is particularly useful uh, that doesn't get the same degree of attention is blind analysis. There's a parallel with pre-registration, where you you have access to the data set, but it's been scrambled in some way that's not meaningful, but you can at least do all of the work to set up your uh, analysis pipeline, to even address things like outliers and exclusion rules uh, without being exposed uh, to the hypothesis. And then when you finalize that, then you peel away Uh, the randomization, uh, and you get your outcome. So when you're peeling away, that's effectively the pre-registration in the the abstract concept. But you can apply that model of blinded analysis in ways that that move outside of the standard workflow of how pre-registrations tend to work. Uh, And that's a really effective and interesting way to do research uh, and is in practice in in some areas, uh, quite common in in some areas like astronomy. So the innovation in how is it that we get to knowing most effectively is, I hope, uh, accelerating in excitement. And one of the things that a new practice like pre-registration can do when it gets a lot of attention and engagement is to actually facilitate that innovation in alternatives. That's that's very productive. That's kind of what scholarship is supposed to be about.
0: Yeah, I, I, I was just about to say this is such a scientist's uh, <laughs> response also, to be curious about what does and doesn't work. And I think that uh, indeed also uh, what I get from this, what you're saying is we're on a continuing journey. Pre-registration is not the destination. It's uh, it's not the panacea. Uh, so, keep going at it and keep keep reflecting on where you are. I want to switch it up a bit, and you know science always takes place in society and I wonder uh, since you know your scientific utopia uh, that you wrote the papers uh, back in two thousand and twelve, if I'm correct, uh, a lot has happened in society, and I wonder how these uh national or world events in the past decade have affected your perspectives on scientific utopia we know that uh, the center for open sciences in Charlottesville, some a major event happened there uh i remember just after uh that we we had a conference where we where we sat down uh the unite the right rally but there's also bigger movements around me too around police brutality do these play into the UNESCO recommendation, open science more in general, and how you see science improving into the future?
1: Yeah, it's a very good question. There are interesting strands that are commonalities with some of the uh, challenges that have emerged. Uh, You know, misinformation, disinformation uh, being another uh, in how do we know what to trust, who to trust, how do institutions be trustworthy and not... uh, is democracy going to continue in places like the United States? Oh, the, the thing that sticks out, uh, and there's many ways that we could talk about, uh, especially on equity and justice lens, but a particular thing that sticks out is the limits of complete openness, right? A lot of the advocacy in, in some of the movements toward openness presents an idealized form of just if everything is completely open, then it'll all be fine. Right. Because people just do what they want. Uh, you know, the extreme on the libertarian perspective of people just do their thing and unbounded. The, the market will work it out. And, you know, like the early versions of Reddit, uh, where there is all kinds of subreddits that were, you know, real, real, you know, filth. Uh, at the bottom of the humanity barrel uh, and then the problems that have emerged in Facebook and Twitter and other social media areas where the initial organizational response and so I'm, I'm looping back to the question here the initial organizational response from the leadership of, uh, uh, of the social media giants has been you know it's free expression we're just giving people a platform to say what they think and what we've Had as an accumulated understanding over the past several years is "Mm, that that may not completely work because the structure of some of those systems may facilitate bad actors in a way that really actually ended up interfering with equity, justice, you know, dealing with uh, accuracy, factual information, and otherwise. And so there is some evolution in thinking about what the responsibility of those platforms are. So what has changed? So to make that more concrete, what is a challenge from my perspective and sort of the origins of thinking about COS and particularly infrastructure, open science framework that we provide is where is it that moderation is needed? And so I, I spend a lot of time now looking more at what is it that we need to be thinking about long term for OSF as a platform for sharing all research to manage that in the same way. Right. We're not there yet because we don't have, you know, so you know, we have 450,000 users. It's not like it's a trivial number of users, uh, but it isn't the it isn't a central hub of information globally. That we have the bad actors flocking to it in the same way, but that, but that may come, uh, and we need to have some kind of framework that is promoting openness, right? Core, maintaining those core values, but developing some standards that are not. If Brian doesn't like this, it's off the off the project, right? Or if COS doesn't like this, right? Does, you know, this, there, no one should be in charge of the information uh, in science. So how do we create platforms that support free exchange debate, even sometimes pretty tough uh, debate, and make sure that it is stays within scholarly boundaries? Right, that, And that gets to a lot of the hostility part that has emerged as part of the reproducibility movement openness movement is that sometimes it's not just I don't like your research, it's I don't like you uh, and a lot of things that come on in, in terms of hostility towards persons. So this is a wandering answer uh, to your question, but that really to me is the core where I translate it to what what? are our responsibilities and our opportunities to learn from some of the challenges that are happening societally and how we try to manifest and advance the values of openness, but all the values of openness, transparency, sharing, inclusivity, engagement, equity, uh, justice.
0: Yeah, there's a lot in there. I hear you say, openness is not an end, uh, it's a means. I hear you say, from your 2012 paper, you say, publishing should be trivial. Uh, and in essence, here's a sort of like a nuance. Well, uh, maybe we also need a bit of moderation. And then the question, how do we do that, uh, it, it comes to it comes to the play. So I think meandering thoughts, uh, meandering answers are Exactly fantastic for these broad questions, because there's so much to cover. If we're ever at a conference together, we can we can talk more about this. Um, yeah, it's one
1: of my favorite topics these days, is trying to just get some handholds on a framework for thinking about those issues.
0: And I know that uh, the Open Science Framework has gone through many developments on this, oh, yeah. so it'll be very interesting to follow it. And just as a note to our listeners also, if in five to ten years, uh, you know, there is more power in your hands, we'll you know, we have the audio clip now <laughs> that you <laughs> didn't want it.
1: I should think about it. So did you think about it? Yeah.
0: So to to start wrapping up uh the, the interview with Tiny Well, not a tiny bit, we are gonna wrap up. I wanna move towards a a bit of a lighter subject and I wanna play a short audio clip before I ask you another question.
1: I'm Haven. I'm Joni.
0: And we are part of the Breakfast Bunch. Um, If you don't know what that is, that is a
1: little sort of mission that we're doing, uh, us and our dad and our mom. And um, basically, We've gone around and tried over 50 different breakfast places in Charlottesville, and we have rated them, um, and we have basically just taste tested a bunch of different foods.
0: So, Brian, your kids seem to really have taken over your YouTube channel, and I came across this, uh, this video of the Breakfast Bunch. Yep. And I've seen you share a bit about this on social media as well, and I think it's just lovely to see, you, you know, you're going out with your kids, measuring things, evaluating systematically. And it made me think of whether you can share a bit more about how you teach your kids about science and what you have learned from your kids uh, to, you know, to take back into how we improve science as a whole
1: yeah uh, breakfast bunch is the manifestation of a few different uh, activities that we have as a as a family. and uh, and you know it's it reflects my personality uh, in part, uh, but also uh, has just turned into a very fun way to engage with the kids on the question you raised earlier. How do we know stuff? Uh, and you know my Haven and Joni are fifteen and twelve now. But for the last four years, we have been going to restaurants once every couple of weeks uh, for breakfast all over Charlottesville. And and we set up at the outset uh, rating criteria. We don't want to just rate on taste. We're going to give different what are the dimensions on which we decide whether we like a restaurant or not. So we talked about that. And then we said, okay, well, how do we decide if we like it or not? How should we rate them? Uh, so we set rating scales for these, and then how do we decide which ones are the best or the worst, and what if we differ, and how do you think about that? And so we've had kind of conversations about reliability and about aggregating across uh, different raters, and uh, and then what the ratings mean. Uh, we're now into test retest reliability. We're going back to some of these 50 restaurants, <laughs> rating them again and comparing. Oh, wow, this is so interesting. This was your favorite. Now it's your least favorite. So the process of doing the ratings has just excited conversations about uh, about things that I care about a lot, but is sort of in a way that engages them uh uh on starting from things that they care about breakfast <laughs> uh and pulling them into things that they found exciting and interesting like how you rate stuff and how you you know decide what things are good or bad uh, or otherwise and this has caught hold so much for them uh that my daughter uh older daughter uh Haven for one of her birthdays organized a blind taste test of ice creams uh for the kids that came over and so they we, know, we set up the rating scales we set up the google spreadsheet and uh went and bought all you know we had a long conversation in the frozen food section uh at the grocery store of should we buy all the same flavor of ice cream from different brands should we buy within a brand different flavors Uh, You know, and and then should we compare by price to see if it's really worth it for the price? So, you know, we're just, you know, we're talking about measurement. Uh, We're talking about validity of scales. We're talking about how do you translate stuff into what the participant in these cases would be able to report? Uh, How do we visualize what it is we're learning from it? Uh, And it's just it's it's just fun, really. And that's really the goal is we're just having fun together, doing something that is interesting. Uh, and then we, we learn stuff. And
0: that brings us full circle uh, with where you started on the episode. It's how do we get people started? So thank you, Brian, for sharing your perspectives here on The Open Update. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll get back to you in five years when you have more power. You just listened to our original interview with Brian Nosak here on the second season of the open update. What do you think? What, what insights came to mind and what resonated, but also what did you disagree with? We would love to hear from you because this is not only a conversation on a podcast. It is a conversation for us all. So I encourage you to leave us a voice message through the link in the show notes. It doesn't need to be perfect. You don't need to have deep insights, and no, you also don't need to create an account. We appreciate it, even if you just end up saying hello and thank you. For now, have a good rest of your day. Next week, we'll be back with our interview with Sam Moore, where we'll talk about the desired limits of open.